This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. My pleasure to uh, welcome to the um, welcome you to the uh, latest installment of Comparative Media Insights. And tonight's speaker is Professor Stephen Dun- Duncombe, who's here from the Gallatin School at New York University, um, my alma mater. Not the Gallatin School, but NYU. Anyway, Stephen's work centers in the area of uh, policy, media, and activism, and. His activism manifests itself in many ways. We'll hear, I think, about some. But I just want to mention some of the textual manifestations. Um, he did a wonderful book, uh, History of Zines, Notes from the Underground, and the Politics of Alternative Culture, an, an area that I imagine had its challenges in terms of research. But um, these are very ephemeral media forms. And um, it's a terrific book, hard-to-get book. Um, the Cultural Resistance Reader, billed as a tool for political activism. And um, I need my glasses for this one. Reimagining progressive politics in an age of fantasy, which uh, Zizek calls, about which Zizek says, the book is simply the sine qua non for any renewal of leftist politics, which is quite an endorsement. So Stephen, it's yours. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm gonna brave this very, wobbly podium and I but but I don't know if you've noticed but they tell you that it's wobbly in advance as if I couldn't figure it out Um, but in any case okay I had to think about what to present uh, today and I could have presented a couple of things I'm working on quite a few projects Um, I could have talked about an empirical project I'm working on which is studying the efficacy of activist art I also could have uh, talked a bit about a historical project I'm working on, which is looking at the art, um, culture, and propaganda of the New Deal. But instead, tonight I decided to do a little bit more of a a theoretical and more speculative presentation, okay? So it's a little less worked out, um, but it would be a little bit more entertaining, one hopes. Um, And against all probably good advice, I am presenting something new, okay? Or at least reasonably new. Um, It builds off something I briefly touched upon in, in um, in my last book, Dream, but also builds off a series of lectures I gave last summer at Moscow State University. And this was the first of the lectures. I was, I was brought in to teach, um, uh, do some lectures on media and imagination. And I just want to run through the, the other lectures so you get an idea of where this leaves off and where it actually goes. What I'm going to be talking about today is sort of a case for a critical utopian media practice. Where I go from here in the second lecture, which will start around 8.45, no, I'm just kidding, um, uh, is going to be, looks at the problem of totality, which is how can one imagine outside of the present? Something uh, people, Descartes through the Marx and so on and so forth have tried to, tried to puzzle through. Um, the third lecture was the attempts, looking at the attempts of historic avant-garde to do so, looking at the French surrealists and the Russian constructivists, and talking about the different strategies each use to try to imagine outside of the present, to think into the future. The fourth 
actually brought us up to the present, which was looking at computers, and I was talking to Nick about this earlier, is about the first was actually looking at screens, um, and looking at screens as architectures, and looking at um, uh, computers, sort of standalone computers as architectural spaces um, whose very confines of imagination are both facilitated but also constrained by code. And the final lecture was about network computers and looking at sort of a new form of imagination, particularly looking at Wikipedia, um, of collaborative imagination and distributed imagination. Um, but that will be a two in the morning. Okay, no, really, we're only going to do one today. Hopefully it will make sense, in, in, and I think it actually does just by itself. Um, on November 12th of last year, New Yorkers awoke to a special edition of the paper of record. And I'm going to hand this out. Just Early this morning, pass it around. readers nationwide were delighted to find out that while they were sleeping, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan had come to an end. According to the newspaper's publishers, 1.2 million papers were printed at six different presses. They were driven to a number of prearranged pickup locations where thousands of volunteers stood ready to pass them out on the street. Articles in the paper announced the establishment of national health care, the abolition of corporate lobbying, a maximum wage for CEOs, and of course, the end of the war. The paper includes international, national, New York, and business sections, as well as editorials, advertisements, and even a page of corrections. I don't know, it's like a dream, you know, you, you, you talk about it, everybody's talking about it, it's like this war needs to end, and here the war is over, it's like, oh my god, I can't believe it. And I knew change was coming to America, I just didn't expect it so fast. <laughs> this could really expand our idea of what's possible. This is a, a, a deep, positive potential thing happening here, so I'll take the credit for that, and I think the time should too. I don't understand what statement they're trying to make. We've been all over the Bush administration since day one. We set the standard for coverage of the Iraq War. Wait, you didn't do it? Or that it atrophied? Or something, a civic muscle, a, 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 a thrifty muscle, um, a generous muscle? I can't believe it. The war is over. <laughs> wow, unbelievable. Oh my God, I, I don't know what to say. I'm trembling. <laughs> Well, what if? What if? This is Ben Kitzer, reporting from New York City. <laughs> okay, this was a, a project, a uh, media prank, um, a, a critical utopian media practice facilitated by two artist activists, Steve Lambert and Andy Bickelbaum, um, with literally a uh, hundred contributors and participants. And the edition of the Times, um, as you can see, was, was not the Times as it is, okay? Um, but as, uh, the Times as one might hope it to be. You can't quite see, but if you look at the top left, it says, all the news we hope to print. Um, it was an act of imagination of what could be. The, final, the woman's final uh, quote, it sticks with me, it's like a dream. Or, I mean, rather the man's quote, or the woman's final quote is, well, what if? Okay. Um, now, full disclosure, um, this was shot like two days before it ever went out. 
if you notice, there's some actors in there. I don't know. There's a, okay. Um, and there wasn't 1.2 million passed out, there, but there was 80,000 passed out. Okay. So even this, uh, this news release had an imaginative element in it as well. Okay. Um, the idea of the paper was to create a tangible product of an imaginary future. It was, as the altered motto in the upper left corner reads, all the news we hope to print. It was a utopian media practice. And the point I want to talk about today or this evening is that it wasn't a solitary instance necessarily, but it was a part of a string of critical utopian media practices that have happened in recent years. We don't have time to go into them. We can talk about them later. Um, but my question is why now? Okay? Why is it that this is happening in the past four or five years? Now when we think of critical media practice, be it a hard-hitting documentary, a media stunt, or political art, we often think of media which holds up a judicial and often not very flattering mirror to the present state of the world. And to use a very famous example, this is Picasso's Guernica. Okay? The painting depicts, albeit in Cubist form, a present reality. The bombing of Guernica um, by German and Italian warplanes at the behest of the Spanish nationalist forces. It was commissioned by the Republican government for display at the 1937 World's Fair in Paris. If one's to say what the point of Guernica is as a critical media practice, one could say that it's supposed to depict the tragedies of war and suffering it inflicts upon individuals, particularly civilians. It says to anybody who's watching, this is the aerial bombardment of cities. This is war. And it demands that now that you've seen this, you must intervene and stop this. This is why it was commissioned. This is why Picasso painted it. This is why Picasso refused to have it go back to Spain until after Franco had left. Um, this critical, revealing, truth-telling function is still the dominant expression of oppositional media and activism. However, for a growing minority, this critical function of oppositional art, media, and politics seems to be being abandoned. These creators and actors have begun to look past criticism of what is and toward an imagination of what might be. Today's political crises these practitioners believe is not one of ignorance, something which might be approached through criticism, revelation, education, and so forth. Instead, the political problem par excellence is one of atrophied imagination. Now, there's nothing new in political artistic fits of utopian imagination. For example, here's Tatlin's monument to the Third International. Early Soviet avant-garde imagined the new man, his housing, his monuments, his clothes, aesthetics, and so on and so forth. But this was at a moment of revolutionary upheaval. It made a certain sense to imagine a future as the past was being destroyed and the future was yet undecided. One could argue the same for the utopian outbursts of the 1960s. But why now, when, as Francis Fukuyama would have it, we're at the end of history? Now, there's probably many likely reasons for this rebirth of utopian imagination on the margins of culture and politics. But I'd argue a big one. Um, was the fall of the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc and the transformation of China. Okay? Um, that is, this was a model of communism. The dissidents in the West, by and large, rejected since the 1930s and certainly from the 1950s onward. Yet even then, its presence was a continual assurance that there was an alternative to liberal capitalism. Maybe not an alternative that one wanted, but an alternative to liberal capitalism. It suggested a possibility even if that possibility was horrific. 
So at one and the same time, one could argue that the Soviet Union and China, for those of in the, in the West, was both an example of political imagination, and thus there was no need to imagine another, or an example of disastrous political imagination, a warning that it is better not to imagine at all, because look at the horrific things that it creates. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the transformation of China, I would argue, opened up a space for imagination. That is, it opens up a space to imagine again. It's safe to imagine again. And at the same time, with the powers that be in the West crowing triumphant that there is no longer any alternative to global capitalism, there's an imperative on the part of dissenters to imagine something. That's one reason, but I want to think, consider something else. That there's another factor in this birth of imagination, a much more profound one, a much more disturbing one for those who have been engaged in critical media practices, which is the exhaustion of critique. That is, these contemporary creators of mediated utopias, consciously or not, have come to the conclusion that rational criticism no longer has a critical function. Now, the power of rational critique, I'm arguing, is based on two intertwined assumptions. One, there's an intrinsic power and worth in knowing or revealing the truth. The second, and this is combined, is that there is a belief often based in superstition, propaganda, lies, and so on and so forth, that must be debunked or stripped away as to get at the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. So I want to explore both of these assumptions in some detail. The idea there's power in knowing the truth is an old one. As the Christian Bible tells us in John 8:31 to 33, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, interestingly enough, this is also the motto of the CIA, just to let you know, okay? Um, now, but what constituted truth in the time of Jesus was hardly the empirical fact of today, okay? It was what we might call the supreme imaginary of the Word of God communicated through the teachings of Jesus. Nonetheless, these are the seeds of the idea and the ideal that knowing the answers to life's mysteries, if one could just figure it out, is an intrinsic good. It would take the Enlightenment to bring truth down to earth and give it its modern political import. It is here that the knowledge of truth, now empirical and material rather than spiritual and traditional, took its place in the heart or rather the head of a reasonable political citizen and the rational economic actor. In brief, democracy in theory is based on the ideal of a reasoning citizen with access to full information. Capitalism, again in theory, is based upon the assumption of rational actors with access to full information. Now this idealization of political power of the truth, or full information, a singular information, is given its purest popular political expression, in my opinion, in Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes, first published in 1837. Everybody know the story? Okay. Just in case you nodded your head and you don't really know the story, I'll tell it to you briefly, okay? So basically, there's this emperor who's very vain, okay? And he spends a lot of money on his clothes and so on and so forth, and he's tricked by these, uh, by these uh, sort of faux tailors who come into town into buying a spectacular suit of non-existent clothing. So spectacular that it feels like you're wearing nothing at all. So spectacular that if you don't have the divine sort of sublime vision, you won't be able to see it at all. So in any case, what the king does is he pays these people a lot of money, and then he goes out and parades it 
amongst the townspeople. And the townspeople, of course, say, ah, oh, what wonderful clothes he has. How beautiful it is. Look at how sublime these things are. Until, of course, there's a little boy. And what does the little boy say? But he does no clothes. And then that truth goes from one ear to another to another. And sooner or later, the whole town says, but he has no clothes. Is this not the primal fantasy of all of us? That we will be those little boys that will find the truth and will spread it to other people. And all of a sudden, truth will travel from person to person and the scales will fall from people's eyes and they'll see the world as it really is, which of course is how we see it. Now, at one time there was a certain logic to this faith in the possession of the truth, or rather, or through criticism, the revealing of a lie. Within an information economy where there's a scarcity of knowledge and often a monopoly on its production and distribution, knowledge actually does equal power. To criticize the truth was to strike a blow at the state or church's monopoly over meaning. Critique at that moment is a decidedly political act. And the amount of effort spent by the church and state in acts of censorship suggests the political efficacy of this act. But we don't live in that world anymore. Now I've got to go over here. Someone should hack PowerPoint so it can do two things simultaneously, okay? Um, on any political issue, there are now hundreds and thousands of versions, opinions, and truths out there. The worldwide count on blogs now ranges from about 60 million to 184 million, each with their own idiosyncratic and highly personalized view of the truth. Even the great gatekeepers of the truth, BBC, CNN, and so forth, have been forced to include user-generated content and comment boards so no singular truth stands alone or is unchallenged. That was my backup in case it didn't work. Always have a backup, by the way. Um, it was the great enlightenment invention of the encyclopedia that democratized truth, <laughs> but only in its reception. Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia, with its now 14 million articles, 3.1 million in English yesterday, probably going up a little, um, has democratized the production of truths. But not just the production of the truths, but the very notion of truth, I think, has changed in Wikipedia, insofar that it's not something which is into something that is always becoming. It's built, transformed, revised, never stable, always fluid, protean. And this is not something hidden. This is not something, when encyclopedias are put together, the King James Bible is created, yes, it's a group of people that are actually deciding upon what makes it into a dictionary or what makes it into the final King James uh, version, what translation, but it happens in a closed room and then it's revealed to the public as what it is. What's amazing about Wikipedia, as what you all know, is you cannot look at it without also being uh, uh, quite aware that this is something which is mutable. That is, the history, the discussion, the debate is always present. And it is constantly something which is transforming itself. In sum, what I would say is today's informational economy is no longer one of monopoly or scarcity. It's a surplus of truth, and therefore a surplus of critique. As such, the idea of criticizing a solitary truth, of swapping one for the other, or the truth for the lie, or the lie for the truth, the emperor wears clothes, no, the emperor doesn't wear clothes, has little meaning and thus little effect. Second thing I want to talk about is the belief. Okay? I said that part of the problem is the idea of a multiplicity of truth. The other is about belief. Um, I just thought this was a great 
Norman Rockwell piece. Anyway, uh, criticism is also contingent upon its opposite, belief, I'd argue. We often think of belief as that which is immune to critique. It is the individual group that is absolutely confident, religious fundamentalists, free marketers in today's world, or totalitarian communists or fascists of the last century, those whom we who have what we might call blind belief that criticism cannot touch. I don't think that's true. I think it's against those who truly believe that critic I think it's against those who truly believe that criticism is its most potent. For criticism threatens to undermine, poke holes, and tear asunder the sort of blanket of belief, which is why, for example, those with such fervent beliefs are often hell-bent on suppressing their critics. Now, people in the U.S. believe in all sorts of things, okay? But can we honestly say that we consciously believe in the system? Let's just look at the, um, the economic system for a second. Rossman Re Reports, which is a major U.S. pollster last spring, reported the bare majority of Americans, only 53%, believe that capitalism is better than socialism. 53% of Americans. This is in a country with no socialist party, where the mainstream media lodged the free market and suggests there are no alternatives, and where anti-communism was raised to an art form. Now, my anti-capitalist friends were thrilled when this came out, as you might imagine, okay? They're waiting for the great leap forward. Um, but I hate to remind them that if the system is firmly in control, it no longer needs belief. It functions on routine, and most importantly, the absence of an alternative. That is to say, when ideology becomes truly hegemonic, you no longer need to believe. The reigning ideology is everything, the sun, the moon, the stars. There's simply nothing outside, no alternative to imagine. What Adorno called teeth-gritting harmony. I love Adorno for those little quip things. Um, when a society no, no, no longer needs to base its legitimacy itself on the conscious belief of its subjects, indeed no longer has to legitimate itself at all, the critical move to debunk belief by revealing it as something based on lies, the emperor wears no clothes, no longer has its intended political effect. Critique may continue for eternity as a ritual of po political subjectivity. It makes us feel as if we're actually doing something. But I would argue its political, impotent, its little political importance is impotent. <laughs> a little parapraxis there. Um, and I'd argue that this is what a new generation of artists, activists, and critical me media practitioners are coming to understand. This is still a minority position. A visit to any biennial or a quick read of any oppositional periodical will confirm this fact. Both will be filled with criticisms of the official truth and the posting of counter-truths. In each venue, there are a thousand wannabe young boys who yell out, but he has no clothes. But the fact that critique has become an important part of mainstream art practice and an essential part of the rhetoric of opposition, I would argue, confirms that it really is no longer a threat. For those who wish to maintain what we're used to calling the critical function of media are doing something else, not revealing the horrors of what was, not commenting upon what is, but instead imagining what could be. But, and this is an important but, not a place that will be. Useful to go back a bit, about 500 years. Um, 1516, 1515, uh, when Thomas More wrote his Utopia which is the story of a far-off land which operated in a radically different logic than that of Moore's 16th century utopia, 16th century Europe. Um, utopia is, well, pretty utopic, okay? No money, no private property, 
or privately held wealth, democratically elected government and priesthood, living and labor rationally planned for the good of all, public health and education, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, separation of church and state, forward aid to other countries targeted toward the poor, and most importantly, no lawyers. <laughs> now, if you read Utopia, there's plenty to find objectionable by our standards. It's still patriarchal, there's colonization, and slavery. But even these are qualified because women can become priests, colonies are temporary, and bondsmen are composed of criminals, those who are condemned to death in other lands, and foreign volunteers who can actually freely leave. So it's utopia, okay? But it's a very curious book, as all of you who have read it know, okay? It's much less straightforward than the sort of ideas of utopian, this beautiful world outside of everything that Europe um, was at that time. Um, there's two books of Utopia. Actually, the second book is written before the first book. But the first book is essentially an argument made through Raphael, who's the traveler and describer of Utopia, um, of why book two, the second book, the actual description of the Isle of Utopia, is politically useless. Um, one, Raphael argues, Europeans are resistant to new ideas, so no one's going to listen to this. Okay. Two, princes and rulers don't listen to any imaginings other than their own, so there's no use being an advisor and, uh, and uh, no use being a Machiavelli figure and actually advising princes. Indeed, I love this, Raphael insists that his own story will soon be forgotten, which of course is a very clever rhetorical strategy to ensure that it won't be forgotten. Okay? Um, and the book is full of these seeming contradictions, riddles, and paradoxes, the grandest one being the title itself. As many of you know, Utopia is composed of the Greek U and topos. It is a place which literally means no place. In addition, the storyteller of this magical land is called Raphael Hathlidae, or Hathlidaeus in Latin, which comes from the Greek huthlus, which means nonsense. So here we are being told a story of a place which is named out of existence as no place by a narrator whose very name says he is unreliable. And so begins the debate. Is the entirety of Moore's utopia a satire? An exercise in demonstrating the absurdity of such acts of imagination? Or actually, is it an earnest effort to suggest and promote such imagination? And there's evidence on both sides. Okay? Evidence for the satirical inter interpretation okay, is that in addition to the names given the place in the narrator, Moore, in his description of the island of utopia, makes seem very attractive possibilities that he as a real live person in his time would have been expected to be dead set against. He's a prominent lawyer, a landowner, a king's counselor, and lord chancellor, yet he proposes outlawing lawyers, allowing women and non-celibate priests, and lack of private property. But then he does something tricky. He also places these serious political imaginaries within a society that also uses gold chamber pots. As such, one might argue, he effectively ridicules all these possibilities. Women priests, well, that's about as absurd as taking a crap in a gold chamber pot. You get the logic here. On the other hand, there's evidence for the sincere interpretation. Raphael, who's our narrator, is named after the arch archangel Raphael, who gives sight to the blind and guides the lost. In this interpretation, Moore uses the absurd to suggest political, economic, and religious imaginings that he condones as the ideal Christian society but would in his time be considered political and religious heresy, things like the democratic election of princes and priests. That is, he can suggest radical ideas, yet at the same time politically distance himself from it, have his cake and eat it too, if you will. Women priests, can't you just see I was kidding? 
but the idea stays in your head. However, this is the orthodox debate about Moore, whether he was satirical or sincere. But I actually think that debate obfuscates rather than clarifies and actually misses the point entirely of what Moore is trying to do. The genius of Moore's utopia is that it is both simultaneously satirical and earnest. And it's through the combination of these seemingly opposite ways of presenting imaginaries that a more fruitful way of thinking about imagination can start to take place. That is, it's the very presentation of utopia as no place and its narrator as nonsense that opens up a space for the reader's imagination to wonder what an alternative someplace might be. Moore imagines an alternative to a 16th century Europe that is openly proclaimed to be a work of imagination. It can never be realized because, after all, it is unrealistic. It is no place. But the reader's been infected. Another option has been shown. They can't safely return to the assurances of their own present as the naturalness of their world has been disrupted. As that old World War I song used to go, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris? Because once an alternative has been imagined, to stay where one is or to try something else becomes a question that demands attention and a choice. Yet, there is no short-circuiting of this imaginative moment by presenting a ready-made believable future, actually existing socialism, which ends up being a simple swapping of one truth for another. See, that is, if you have a believable utopia, essentially what you're asking people to do is replace the present with a fully made future, one truth for another. By calling the future absolutely unrealizable, it puts the reader in this middle place and demands that they do some work. Utopia is no place. And as no place, it denies us the easy option of such a simple choice. It is, to use a phrase of Frederick Jameson's describing utopia, a peculiar suspension of the political. But I would argue this impossible utopia also leaves a space for the return of the political through the response of the reader. The question of alternatives is left open, and a space is opened for the reader of utopia to imagine, why not? How come? Or, as the woman interviewed in the New York Times video put it, what if? So I was drawn into working on the faux New York Times, um, which is it still going around? Yeah, just uh, keep, keep going around. Uh, open up to the back page. All the way to the back. Okay. I wrote the copy for the ads. Okay. Um, I found out I have a hidden talent. I can go into advertising if academia doesn't work out. Okay. Um, any case, I was, I was brought into that um, by one of the main organizers of the prank, Steve Lambert. A few months earlier, I had met Steve and his collaborator, Packer Jennings, who asked me to write the catalog essay for a set of street posters um, commissioned and displayed by the city of San Francisco. What they did with these street posters is that they were charged with asking experts in the fields of architecture, planning, and transportation for ideas on how to make a better city. And then, in the artist's own words, those ideas were exaggerated. Okay? Uh, there we go. That's the Muni of tomorrow. Okay? Um, I would argue it's exactly this exaggeration that makes these artists imagining so interested. Okay? This is the fastest way across the bay. <laughs> Candlestick farms into an organic farm, I mean, Candlestick Park into an organic farm, linebackers into plows. <laughs> Movable city, so if you don't like things, you just move it around. Um, 
and my favorite, um, the uh, wildlife refuge. Okay? What's so inspiring and honest about the visions of our future offered up by Jennings and Lambert is the transparent impossibility. Now, a city can become more green with additional public parks and community gardens. But transforming San Francisco into a nature preserve where office workers take their lunch break next to a mountain gorilla family, that ain't going to happen. And that's exactly the point. Because it's not going to happen, their fantasy fools no one. There is no duplicity, no selling the people a false bill of goods. It is a dream which people are aware is just a dream. Yet at the same time, these impossible dreams open up spaces to imagine new possibilities. The problem with asking professionals to think outside of the box and imagine new solutions is without intervention they usually won't. Their imaginations, like all of ours, are constrained by the tyranny of the possible. By visualizing impossibilities, what Jennings and Lambert are doing are creating an opening to ask what if without closing down this free space by seriously answering this is what. This is one of their solutions for, the, by the way, that's Packard Jennings and Steve Lambert, for what to do with a BART. Um, you, you know, you can actually uh, sleep in it, you can actually turn it into a bar, a dog walk, library, taekwondo studio, and, and gym, okay? Now, standing in front of one of these, um, on a street corner, you might smile at the absurd idea of practicing taekwondo on your train ride home. But you might also begin to question, why is public transportation so unifunctional? And then ask yourself, why shouldn't a public transport system cater to other public desires instead of usually private interests through advertisements and so on? Now this could set your mind to wondering why the government is so often in the business of controlling instead of facilitating our desires. And then you might start to envision what a truly desirable state that would look like. What I'm arguing here is that Jennings and Lambert's impossible solutions, like Moore's utopia, are really a means to imagine new ones. In 1861, Otto von Bismarck, Germany's Iron Chancellor, wrote famously that, quote, politics is the art of the possible. Bismarck was articulating the core philosophy of the hard-headed, hard-hearted, <coughs> realpolitik that he was famous for, a sober understanding of what is possible based on a rational understanding of the present circumstances. What I've tried to argue this evening is another approach, an approach which ironically might be better suited to the real conditions of our phantasmagorical present, an approach which is currently being practiced by artists and activists and civic media makers looking to recapture the transformational promise of their craft, a sort of dream politique whose core philosophy might be described as the following, politics is the art of the impossible. Thank you. Okay, the mic is for recording, not amplification. Please um, put your name and who's going to be first? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Hi, my name is Joel Burgess. Uh, I just have a question about temporality, which is um, along with Jameson, you seem fairly. Um, oriented upon futurity here as a kind of break with the present. I'm actually about wondering where the past stands in all of this. Um, and if the past actually has to necessarily ever end up being simply a nostalgic return, or if the past can be a form, which I don't believe, but which the past can be a form 
through which sort of other possibilities can emerge as well? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I actually think that the past can be, and I'll give you an example. Um, although none of the examples that I'm looking at today use that. They're, you're absolutely right. What they're all doing is looking at the future. Um, folks from the futures, uh, what's it called? Uh, future studies at University of Hawaii even create postcards which are um, sort of postcards of the future which are sent back to the past, okay? And they, so they play with the past. But what you're asking, I think, is can the past be used for this sort of radical imagining, okay? And I want to give an example which we were talking about earlier, which is um, art from the New Deal. Because um, I think that one of the things that happened in Art from the New Deal, and particularly thinking of the mural project of the WPA and also the Treasury Department, um, was that they actually re-envisioned the past of America to be in sync with the present of the New Deal. That is, let literally use the past as a way to retell what had happened so it led logically up to the New Deal. Now, this was an imaginative leap, okay? There's much more evidence that the past actually had nothing to do with the New Deal. It had to do with a government which actually, at best, had a negative function insofar as it kept away authority. It didn't have the positive function of a welfare state. Yet, in the, the hands of the artists and propagandists of the New Deal, the past was continually used to make this imaginative leap into what was the present and, therefore, into the future. And you can see that in um, post offices all over the place. And I'm sorry, what yeah. struck me here was the use of a newspaper, so of a kind of his, a medium that's essentially yeah. <laughs> historical at this yeah. moment for a utopian, futuristic, critical practice, right? Yeah. Um, I thought that was, especially since, I mean, we listen endlessly to yeah. the newspapers as dead, yeah. as historical. So it, it just interested me that the, to be a sort of outmoded medium became the medium of futurity here. Yeah, so. it is. I think there might have been some creative tension in that. What we were trying to do is actually have a sense of tangibility that is a, literally an artifact of the future in one's hands that we give a sort of vested authority to, which we don't to information. Our original idea was to hack the Trinitron at Times Square. We realized that wasn't <laughs> going to happen. And in the end, I think this ended up working out a lot better. Yeah, Nick. That sort of uh, chipped away at my question a bit, but uh, I wanted to ask uh, something uh, um, much more practical bent, uh, if you'd be a bit utopian about utopian works and, and, and uh, about how they, how they come about. You mentioned Moore's, uh, your discussion of, of Moore's utopia, of course, it's, uh, uh, it's presented as a book. Yeah. Um, and its influence comes, you know, in that media form. And then we were talking earlier about uh, Bellamy's Looking Backwards, a yeah. very influential American utopia, right, which again is, is a book. Yeah. And yet uh, your uh, work and thinking uh, is a lot about what artists are doing. You showed us posters in public spaces and yeah. handed out uh, newspapers yeah. rather than books. And so um, my question is, what in what media forms will um, the next set of utopias, the next uh, Looking Backward or the next... Um, uh, uh, utopia more, um, uh, will they arrive? What, what, will, what will they be? Stone tablets. No. Um, <laughs> I, actually, but I, I hadn't thought about this before, but both your questions are making me think about this. That most of these objects of utopia are centered in media of the past. That is, postcards. When was the last time you sent a postcard? Okay. Posters. Um, newspaper. Um, we consciously did not do a uh, radio cast, which was another idea, uh, but we could have, um, kind of the war of the world thing. But there's something about that tension. For example, would this have worked? Now, there is a companion website 
um, for the New York Times piece, but it doesn't quite have the same feel. And so maybe one of the ways to look at this is actually about the tension of the media of the past with this sort of projection of the future that it gives it some sort of a solidity which allows and also kind of breaks it. That is, if my thesis is correct and what you're trying to do is always say this is unrealizable, then we're not going to have postcards 30 years in the future. There aren't going to be a post office that delivers them. And that actually kind of makes this idea of an unrealizability front and foremost. Can I take one? Uh, uh, sure. So Ian Condry. Uh, and um, uh, my question, I know one of the things you're interested in is the uh, efficacy, the political efficacy of yeah. art and criticism or non-criticism. Yeah. And so, I, that, you know, I think it's, we often say, well, it opens a space for imagination yeah. and, you know, builds community. And uh, how would you measure yeah. the efficacy of this? Well, yeah. How would you put that? Um, okay. The, uh, great question. And a question that I'm going to be hoisted by my own petard, as they, <laughs> as they say. Um, and part of the working on things like this led me to the empirical project of trying to figure out, does this stuff work? Okay. And the, the simple, um, unsatisfying answer is there is no possible way. Okay? Because what would you ask? You'd do a pre-test and a post-test and say, did you imagine something new about the train? Okay? Now, what are you going to do about that imagination of the train and so on and so forth? This sort of work, I think, works very different than some of the work I was talking to other people about, which is about, quite simply, trying to get a politician elected by building up their public image or creating a community around a single work of art. This is about a redistribution of the sensible, to use sort of the Ranciarian terms. This is about fundamentally recalibrating what is possible. And actually, I mean, you know, part of the problem with this idea of the recalibration of the possible, and I talk about this with the avant-garde, is that you have to do it in such a way that is both discernible to the present, yet also suggests something in the future. And that's always the contradiction with the avant-garde, because if it's really avant-garde, you're not going to be able to understand it whatsoever. Okay? But if you hit that line correctly, what you literally do is bring into the senses, and, and Ranciere uses senses purposefully, literally bring into um, being, seeing, hearing, tasting, things which otherwise wouldn't have been there. The ideal hope, and it is ideal, is that one walks into the BART the next day, looks up at the advertisements and says, why are, you, why are those here? Okay? But then the trick is, for political efficacy, is what are you going to do about it? And I actually don't think art by itself has that power. There has to be some sort of follow-up. Okay? Now, the New York Times was done in conjunction with real groups, real political groups. Interestingly enough, there was two other ones that came out in rapid succession, an International Herald Tribune and a New York Post. Both of them were funded by Greenpeace. And they were both instrumentally done around particularly global climate um, uh, uh, um, uh, meetings as a way to sort of pump up, get an added boost, and add that sort of critical element. And neither of them were as successful. Now, partly that had to do they were the second and third ones. You get a lot of bump out of the first one. But it also makes us think about this. Is, is part of this, going back to what, what um, uh, 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 Frederick Jameson talks about the suspension of the political is that part of its power, and then how do you then repoliticize it? It's a great question. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, I suppose my question builds upon that, but comes from a slightly different direction, and comes actually out of because I've been doing another job, doing a job search in, um, in, in and there's a writing sample I read there, which is actually quite a good one, and what was it struck me listening to your talk was uh, one a kind of interesting resemblance between the argument you're mounting and an and the argument raised in that talk, which had to do with 
the way by which scenario thinking mm -hmm. in the 70s, 80s, yeah. corporations became a, a crucial thing. And it actually seems to be formally yeah. amazing, quite a strong formal connection between that kind of thinking and the kind of work of the magician mm -hmm. being done here. And what was interesting in, in the description of, 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 the f of scenario thinking was the way in which uh, futures are imagined, um, but not on the basis of probability, that is to say, no. on the likelihood of a future yeah. occurring, but on the basis, in fact, quite often of their improbability. Yeah. However, what one could do then is to create a narrative that would take you from your present to that future. And that the ease of creating those narratives became, in fact, a way by which that future is said to be plausible. Mm -hmm. And if it can be, it's plausible, therefore you act against that future to prevent it from coming into being, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems to me there's a kind of a dystopic version of the, of the imagination, which is kind of interestingly linked in the formal sense mm -hmm. to the kind of stuff you're, do, you're do doing here. The difference, of course, is here is that, uh, I mean, one obvious difference is that for you, the, uh, the future is necessarily non-realizable yeah. as a condition. Well, there it is at least possible in, in right. that sense, but possible but impro highly improbable. Right. So this question of probability and improbability is the other criteria. So I was just wondering uh, about, how, about that relationship, about the formal, about the, the way in which the imagination has this kind of double edge mm -hmm. going in the kind of the activist direction you're uh, and, taking. And the sort of corporate and, scenario, corporate and the second point would feed out of the one question there, which is, in the scenario thing of that kind, what's crucial is, in fact, the production of action to, yeah, to, yeah. Uh, to foreclose a certain future. And in the kind of the individual position from which you create a space in the kind of imagination that you're uh, suggesting, what still is, needs to be done is to figure out how to make, for to repolitization, to make these different possible imaginings yeah. cohere in a certain kind of way, right? I mean, I could imagine yeah. all kinds of right. scenarios. Right. And so that, so that seems to be the other crucial question, yeah. how action towards some other future, if not the one that's yeah. even it, 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 so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that's a great question. I'm gonna reframe it a little bit yeah. um, so I can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna reframe it like this because I think this might be getting at it, which is um, what good is a future which is absolutely impossible, okay? Mm -hmm. Insofar as if it creates this space to imagine something which is possible, then well, hasn't the whole sort of point of this collapsed, okay? What I think that one can do and what I hope one can do is create a way of thinking about the future in which it's always, if not impossible, improbable, and accept that for what it is, okay? And I'm thinking about Eduardo Galeano has this wonderful uh, talk about utopia, okay? Which he says, utopia is like the sun um, on the horizon, or no, it's like the horizon. I walk one step forward, it walks one step back. I walk two steps forward, it walks two steps back. What good is it? It's good for walking. That is, in other words, um, but, but he's, he means it insofar as it, it gives a place to walk toward knowing you will never reach it. Because the problem with realizable utopias is that, I mean, a couple. One is disenchant. <laughs> is disenchantment, okay? You're never going to realize it, and then what you do is you give up. The second is the proclamation that it happened, Stalin's actually existing socialism, okay? Um, and the idea of to being able to hold these complicated idea of a future which will never happen, yet contains within it the seeds of what we want to happen, yet constantly transforming, constantly moving out in front of it, keeps you walking. It changes from a product to a process. And there, I think, it actually gives some sort of direction for some sort of political mobilization. But it's, I think it always has to be mobilization into a dream which you always know is a dream. Hi, Beth Coleman from Writing and CMS. Thanks for the talk. Um, can you talk a little bit about the utopian status of new media tools? And I'll give you two yeah, examples. Sure. And it might not be utopian. It might be uh, fantastic or just stupid. 
So here are the, here are the two, my, my two examples. Yeah. No. <laughs> that, that is fantastic, <laughs> perhaps not utopian. Um, different conversation. Uh, the Twitter revolution, the so-called Twitter revolution, Iran, there's a revolution going yeah. on, and Twitter started it. Right. And part of the pushback against that is people in Iran reporting on non-Twitter sources. Well, in fact, a small sector of university um, young people yeah. use Twitter, but the rest of us in the streets are, things are happening in many different ways. Yeah. But it's appealing for uh, you people in the West to think that it's a Twitter revolution. Yeah. Another example, some really great people who I've worked with at Berkman, they say, we've got gangs and violence, so we're gonna build a game. And that's gonna help solve that problem because games, when you go through these scenarios, it, it kind of fixes everything, obviously. Right. And, you know, I'm a, Philip Tan is awesome, like Gambit is great. I enjoy working on games and seeing what they can do, but to have so many good people say to me, oh, I know how we'll fix it, yeah. we'll build a game. So how does <laughs> some of the utopian yeah. things around new media properties? I agree. I think when, I mean, the, something I sometimes call ether activism which is this notion of, you know, essentially you're going to get a fix. Stuart Hall used to always write about um, subcultures. My first book was on subcultures, about um, that subcultures offered a magical resolution of real-world problems. That doesn't mean it resolved it. It created a sphere in which those real-world problems were magically resolved. But underlying, and this goes back to the second question first, the still tensions which create gangs are there poverty, hopelessness, machismo, and so on and so forth. And games may or may not offer out different ways to kind of work out some of those tensions, but the material conditions remain, okay, until you address those material conditions. The Twitter revolution, is, uh, it reminds me of the texting revolution and the cell phone revolution that came before it. People called each other on phones, <laughs> you know? Committees of correspondence, people wrote on letters to one another, okay? In other words, is that there's this temptation, I agree with you 100% on this, there's a temptation that any time a new media comes about um, to say, this couldn't have happened without that media. The fact is, no, it would have. Um, I, think, I think to look at media and say, this can only happen with, uh, if this media had been in place at this time, is to misunderstand history because the revolutions have happened over and over. Now, there are certain things that I think can only happen. I don't think you can have something like Wikipedia happen without a network setting. I don't think you can have open source happen. Um, but I'm very suspicious of this notion of, well, without texting, without Twittering, people wouldn't have been on the streets in Iran. I think they would have. Um, and I don't think it has to do with national media. It helps, it facilitates, but I think people probably would have figured out a different way to do it. Oh, that's good. I don't know. What do you think? You mean uh, you mean in so advertising for who? I don't know. You mean advertising for the for the Twitter folks? No, no, for this new media. You know, I I think, and I'm just I'm I'm going to go off off. You know, I'm just saying this off the top of my head. I think it's a way to depoliticize the situation. You know what I mean? It's a way to basically say um, this is something that happened for a technological reason, not for social and structural problem, uh, for uh, reasons, okay? That is, if it wasn't for this media, it wouldn't happen. It's the old tech debt argument, okay? Um, and I think that, that gets trundled out over and over. The fact is, it might have happened faster. It might have spread farther. 
But the fact is, people have been coming together as groups in different formations. They find different media sources um, for millennia. Yeah. My name is Marty Marks. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to dis deflate the very positive energy that's in the room, but I, 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 I may because I want to shift the ground a little bit sure. to ask you something that I think is at least not saying, um, just tell me more. I want to kind of ask you to, uh, uh, against some of the things you've sure. said. First of all, uh, so I have a couple of things. First of all, the way you started with the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, was an interesting, I think, rhetorical ploy because I don't believe the fairy tale is about what you said it's about at all. It's not about the relativity of truth. In fact, it's about the opposite. It's oh, yeah. about the fact that everybody pretends that the emperor has no clothes because they're afraid. Yeah, definitely. And out of the mouths of babes mm -hmm. come the, the wisdom that then people have the courage to voice. Mm -hmm. So there's a very liberal kind of political desire on the part of Anderson there to say that if adults will dare to speak the truth, they can accomplish something, yeah. right? It's a satire for that purpose. But you seem to be arguing something quite different, which is the truth does not exist except in relative terms. And therefore, the best art now is the art that acknowledges that, that there is no such thing as a realizable true place so we can if we acknowledge that we can get somewhere but isn't Jameson's suspension of the political simply a, a, a twisting of Coleridge's suspension willing suspension of disbelief or say Richard's idea uh, I Richard's idea that the best artworks are the artworks the richest poems are the ones that that have an equilibrium of the most complex states of feeling and knowledge, all kind of contained within themselves, so that any artist who opens up our imagination is doing this. So why is there suddenly something special about this new kind of media utopian stuff? Why aren't they simply carrying on from what all kinds of imaginative artists have done, Beethoven or, mm -hmm. you know, so forth? Sure. Um, good questions. I think misunderstood what I was doing with Hans Christian Andersen. I was, I was agreeing with you 100%. I was saying that that's exactly the reading of the 19th century about the value of the truth as a revelatory moment. Um, and what I was calling into question is, is that applicable now? Okay? Is there the moment of saying, look who's behind the curtain um, that has the same sort of political import that it would have had in the 19th century? Okay, so I agree with you 100%. The point about art, I think, is a, is a really good point. What I would say is what's, what I'm talking about, which is different, is these people aren't just artists. These are artists who see their mission as a political mission. And traditionally, what I would argue is that a lot of this sort of critical art practice or critical media practice has taken the idea of revelation, critique, tearing away the uh, the, the myth to show that the, that the, that the uh, emperor wears no clothes as their fundamental center of being. They've done it in complicated ways, they've done it in nuanced ways, they've done it in vulgar and silly ways, okay? But what I'm trying to point out is that these artists who think of themselves as political artists are doing something different at this point. They're not engaged in that game. It's not to say that they, you know, there's no value in that game, but they're not engaged in it. Is there fundamental argument, either conscious or unconscious, is that the political value of their work is to be seen in creating spaces for imaginations to happen. 
which is very different, I would argue, than the idea of revealing the horrors of a bombing and Guernica. Okay? Done in a beautiful way, done in an evocative way, done in a way that actually stays with me far longer than any paragraph description or even a photograph does, yet still it has that function. This is a, they're working with a sort of a different, um, uh, different criteria of, a, of effect and affect, I would say. Hi, Noel Jackson, Literature. Yeah. I'm going to ask a very crude question, and I'll apologize for the crudity of the question, but you, you produce a very cogent account of the aesthetic politics of contemporary media practice, yeah. right? And I, I have a certain native sympathy with your viewpoint, and so I want to argue against Good. it a little bit. All the better. And, and approach you with, say, the, the classic vulgar Marxist, if you will, critique of the aesthetic and of the aesthetic sensibility. And, and just send back to you the possibility that these are nothing but privileged, frivolous language games, yeah. that the privilege of inconsequence is a privilege open only to the privileged few, yeah. and that therefore we can play these games ad infinitum and, and yet positively nothing will change yeah. because it's, it's, it's intellectual play and nothing yeah. more. Good. Having been a vulgar Marxist all through my undergraduate career, <laughs> um, this, this is actually something I play with all the time. Okay, um, I think that the, that the that the problem with this sort of work, and I'm going to I'm going to actually nuance it too, is it goes back to this ether activism, which is this becomes just another clever trick. Okay, or I would argue another uh, a colleague of mine at NYU said, but isn't this pure ludic? engagement. That is, ha-ha, play, so on and so forth, okay? And it ends with that game of play, okay? So there's two things I would suggest. One is, I would agree. I think that this is not a replacement for active political engagement, okay? But it adds an opening for new ways to think about and think of directions for political engagement, okay? So it's not, we're not caught in the cycle of reasonable solutions to the problems which face cities. It's one. The second thing is, I'm not sure it's about the privileged. Okay? If you look at who does this imaginative work the best, who's I have a dream? It's the civil rights movement in this country. Okay? Or think about um, Subcomandante Marcos in southern Mexico. Or think about Brazilian social movements. Okay? That actually this sort of dream work, this sort of phantasmagorical you know, work, um, actually is done a lot better um, and has a long history in actually underprivileged communities and not the West, actually. It really, the, the leaders in this are coming from the global South, if anything. And so that doesn't kind of resolve the problem of the ether activism, but it does suggest that it's not just, you know, art school students playing it being clever, that actually they're taking their leads. And a lot of this stuff came out of working with um, uh, movements from the global South during the globalization movements. And this is where, if you want to, my, a lot of my history comes from Reclaim the Streets and so on and so forth, is we actually got all of this, borrowing it from it, from the South. Um, so, and that's not to say that means it's unproblematic, it's from the South. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, ju it just means that the, the privilege part has to, I think it's still highly problematic. Uh, all right. Um. I would like to preface my question by saying that I'm not convinced that um, one can belittle technologically enabled activism. And actually, Beth and I were thinking along the same lines. Berkman Center, she mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, made uh, a free rice pro uh, game that enables uh, the I would say the younger generation of the public to participate and to 
play the games, the longer they play, mm -hmm. the better they play, they, they donate more to the charity of their choice. Mm -hmm. And this whole program was run by the UN uh, Food Hungry, Hungry Relief um, Program. So I was tempted to suggest that we substitute the word critical with the word interactive. And then look at, uh, look at uh, the role of technology, the good and bad and the ugly it brings to real life and to utopia. I'd like to get you take on sure. the role of technology on utopia. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff in there, which is really great. Okay, the first thing is, I'm, I'm sorry if I came across belittling technology, technologically enabled activism. I'm actually, not only am I in favor, favor of it, but it seems impossible to move into the future without technologically enabled activism. I think what, how I was responding to, to Beth is this idea of that when technology becomes this sort of fetish object which explains activism, um, and the examples of saying using the Twitters or the cell phones or so on and so forth, it enables, but it doesn't necessarily transform it. And one can imagine the same sort of activism working, perhaps not as far and not as well and so forth, with previous technologies. Now, your example, I think, is something different. And this is, I think what's exciting about this is starting to think about not technology as replicating the uses that were used before. I'm telling my friend that the police are on the street over there, but fundamentally changing the way we think about our interactions and thereby changing the way we think about our political organizations and so on. Now, this, let me just explain one more thing. This isn't about technology, but maybe this will help a little bit. Um, my last book was about using popular culture and using popular culture and spectacle in trying to understand and make uh, uh, democracy more engaging. On one level, it was about, well, people have to learn how to embrace popular culture a little bit more if they want to speak to, to people. On the other hand, I was trying to get deeper, not think of this just as a tactic, but as embedded in the very strategies of organizations. So I'm interested in technology embedded not just as a tactic, that is, I use this to get this done, but how it changes very strategic thinking about what our goals are, and even perhaps organizational structures, how organizations don't have to be in time and space in the same way that they might have had. I think that changes the playing field entirely. Can I make another quick Sure. I, I think the word critical really, I mean, the, uh, the practices, the critical media practices were primarily the examples you showed us uh, were produced by artists and New York Times. Yeah elites, cultural elites. Yeah. My suggestion about the substitution of that word with interactive brings out the peer-to-peer, -peer, what technology was able to release. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the good part of it, mm -hmm. right? So that I want to make sure that. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That he, I, I've been waiting. Uh, uh, Steve, I have, to, I have uh, uh, two questions. One, uh, uh, let, let me state them both, and then you can respond. What the, the, uh, the uh, uh, can you? I'm sorry. Hold it close. No, no. Oh, I see. Okay. You mean just speak loudly? Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, people rarely ask me to speak loudly. <laughs> very, very unusual. Um, my first question, Steve, uh, bears on the kinds of uh, questions that Martin Marx was asking you mm -hmm. before. I mean, one of my problems with your, uh, I mean, I think it's very interesting and, and, and rich in a lot of ways, but one of my problems is I see no boundaries to, the, to what you call 
uh, your field of interest. Uh, isn't a science fiction story immediately uh, yeah. uh, oh, a, a form of what you're saying? Isn't a surreal painting that presents the world with, with in, in ways that are not realistic mm -hmm. uh, uh, an experience of that? So the, so the first yeah. question has sure. to do with the problem of how you bound what you're talking yeah. about, how you really d uh, d define a, a field of yeah. inquiry. And then the second question is related to that, Steve, and, that, and, and it's an even more practical, but I think a profound question. How does this kind of preoccupation translate in a curricular sense to a media studies program? Uh, in, in, in what ways do these uh, uh, perspectives lead us to think about what kinds of courses we would offer graduates or undergraduates? What relation would those courses have to other kinds of subjects? Okay. Those are hard questions, Dave. Good questions. Hard questions. Okay, the first one is this. Um, lecture two looks at surrealist art. Lecture three looked at Russian science fiction. But, um, but, but I think you're absolutely right. How I'm defining the field is I'm interested in art or media practices which are thought of by the creators as intervening directly in a political process. Okay? That is, science fiction is wonderful, okay? And I love reading science fiction. Um, and you have people like Robert Heinlein who are deeply political and so on and so forth. Um, or the, uh, but it's not necessarily seen as something to move an agenda forward, okay? I'm interested in art which is actually seen as a tool to use some sort of agenda forward or to, in, to engage in a political discussion or transform a social world. So that's how I'm bracketing it, okay? If a science fiction writer actually writes and says, I want this to transform the world, then I'll include them, okay? But otherwise, that's how I'm bracketing it out. I, I definitely think it's, it's, it's intention. It's, now that's not it's the creator's intention. Yeah, but that's, that, that doesn't mean that a science fiction work or a piece of art can't have a massive impact. Okay? I'm just saying what I'm interested in looking at right now is art that's actually used and media practices which is, are used essentially instrumentally. Okay? Now instrumentally can be very wide, but instrumentally. Um, there's something other. I know your second question, but there's something else about that first question that I wanted to follow up on. But how do you're bounding later. your yeah. territory. Yeah, so I'm bounding the territories in that way. Is I'm interested in art, which is the artist is interested or is engaged in actually political struggle, but it's self-consciously thought of as a critical media practice, which the Surrealists, by the way, did. I mean, Andre Bataan thought of himself and thought what work they did, and that's why I include the, both the Surrealists and the Constructivists. Both of them thought themselves engaged directly in political transformations in radically different ways. Okay? So I, I have no problem with talking about that or them at all. The second thing is, how do you translate into the curriculum? I'm just going to punt on this one. I, I have no idea, David. Not at this point. Okay? That is, is that this is something that I think it would be great to have a course on utopias. Okay? And look at mediated utopias and look at how they've transformed from Edward from Thomas More to Edward Bellamy to um, contemporary examples. Look at the sort of play between what's happening with the reader and what's happening with the spectator, looking at where they've been used for political uh, movements or where they've just been understood as art. Also look at dystopias, which we didn't talk about at all, in the function of dystopias. I think one could do a wonderful piece around mediated utopias and mediated dystopias and their function. That's just off, but this, is, I've been thinking about this for 45 seconds. So, uh, so give me a little time and I'll, I'll, I'll try to work out something else. I haven't taught on this, by the way, just to let you know that. 
Hi, yeah. my name is Nina Huntiman. I'm from Suffolk University. I have a question about presidential politics sure. and some of the oh, ways in which one. you're imagining this project might have been related. It seems to me that a lot of the fervor around Obama was about what he helped us imagine, mm -hmm. and perhaps some of the disappointment since has been what we actually got. Yeah. But then there was also a moment, and I'm not sure who was behind it specifically, but when there was a response to this idea that Obama was going to solve everything, like he's going to part the water. Yeah. So there was a critical yeah. media intervention response to what was being glommed onto him of how we might imagine this better world. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, there's two ways to read the Obama campaign. Um, one is cynically. Um, Walter Lippmann's manufacturer of consent um, from his public opinion in which you float up an empty symbol and people attach their own personal passions to it and then you move from the symbol to the politician and bingo you get someone elected. Okay, This has been happening since 1920s at least when Walter Lippmann wrote about this. The other way to look at it is exactly how I'm looking at it which is basically this notion of these are utopian longings which are happening. The difference is it was a utopia that wasn't understood as a fantasy. Okay, and thereby goes the disappointment. Is that is this person was supposed to bring about change and hope. He's a politician. He's a successful politician, and he's a president with a split Congress. This isn't going to happen. Okay, and that did. I know. Well, they 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 forgot it because we have a different relationship to these ideals. They're supposed to be realized. Whereas I'm talking about these unrealizable hopes, which then can never be realized. Now, one of the things that did happen during the campaign is exactly this. I was on a panel three weeks ago with one of the designers for the Obama campaign. And she was wonderful because she talked about that there was a concerted effort on the part of uh, his opposition to paint him as the Messiah. Okay, and I don't know if any of you have seen, there was a viral video created for the right-wing Christian market, which actually is called The One, okay? And it literally has a stare in the backwards going up to heaven. And it has all these code phrases from the Left Behind series and so on and so forth. When that happened, what they did is they changed his pictures. No longer was he like this. Um, and the crowd around him, they instead shot him from behind, okay? And if you'll notice what ended up happening around the, um, uh, the inauguration, not the inauguration, the, um, uh, the DNC victory uh, party, was they shot it all from behind. Try to get a photo from him being shot from the top. There's one that's circulating that's come from a British newspaper, almost none of, none of the rest ones. All the photocore was put behind him in tow to get this idea not of him rising above but actually being pleasant. They also changed the color blue in the background for the Obama campaign. Um, it was no longer going to be an inspiring blue, but instead a sobering blue. I'm not making that up. Um, um, but they were very conscious of this idea of hope, raising this idea of hopes and then tamping it back down. Still, I think this is a different notion of utopia than what I'm talking about for the very reason is that it presents itself as realizable. Um, and that way, it leads to disappointment or it leads to a certain level of dishonesty. Um, Hi, uh, I'm Catherine Dignasia. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. Um, I just had a couple questions about how you're situating, or, or, or kind of how you've narrowed a field of contemporary activist practice, because there's a lot of practices that are going on that actually hinge on what's possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and, and on a kind of enacting 
of the possible on a really small scale, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the budget of art artist activists. So I'm thinking of projects like um, Fallen Fruit, where um, which is out in LA, where they publish maps of all of the places yeah. where fruit overhangs onto the yeah. street, um, where people can go and you can go and like pick mm -hmm. fruit. So you know, thinking about like public space and private space, um, and then also you know, uh, groups like Future Farmers, um, which work on the basis of the production of really well designed like kits and stuff mm -hmm. like that that do actually function that you can use. Um, but that you know they're not for sale on a mass-produced level. They're not distributed to kids in schools and so on. Um, so so stuff like that, which which is is small, but but is possible it's and yeah. and and is working on this idea of like actually convincing people that you could do this, yeah. um, which that seems like a really important sort of strain of political art that's happening. And then also uh, potentially projects such as uh, I'm thinking of like Waiting for Godot, which Paul Chan staged in New Orleans, um, which was not only a theater production, um, but was also this kind of sustained year-long um, uh, community development mm -hmm. in a way that, that touched hundreds of people. And so it's like a kind of a taking into account of what that kind of um, real sort of artist intervention in communities might potentially do as well, which so those projects Maybe they involve a little bit of utopia, but I, I'm not sure if they fit in your the way that you're talking about. Um, I actually don't think they do. Um, I think they're great. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a research associate at IBM Center for Art and Technology, and two or three of the people working there, Eve Mosher, Britta Riley, Rebecca Bray, are all working on these sort of sustainable little rooftop gardens or window gardens. And the whole idea is what they call sort of a DIY environmentalism, which is the idea that you actually you lower the stakes and you make it absolutely easy for someone to actually create these things. It's wonderful. Um, I don't think it creates that moment of imagination which gets outside the planner's mind, the things that can essentially um, redistribute the sensible. But one of the things that I've learned, well, both as a teacher but a political organizer, is that it, a multiplicity, a diversity of tactics, a multiplicity of goals is really the only way to go out. No, we don't know what's going to work. What I've tried to do here is actually point out one sort of tendency which seems to react against a dominant tendency, the idea of the critique or revealing or truth-telling. But what you're pointing out is that these artistic practices aren't really worried about that at all. They're occupying someplace in between. And so that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I just, in some ways, it's sort of like, it goes back to what David was talking about. How do I bound my thing? I bound it by saying, that's really neat. Mm -hmm. That's not what is happening over here. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me. Well, okay. I'm sorry. Just because we yeah. got a couple more sure. questions in, and, sure. and William is saying we can't <laughs> delay. Um, can, can we talk a little bit, and this may in another way get your interest. It seemed to me one of the really interesting things you were doing, this circles back to Joel's initial question, um, had to do with time and temporality and the past and the future. And what you're trying to get at, I hear, is something 21st century about mm. utopianism that is different, say, from Breton and others yeah. who did the radical modernist break with the past. Right, right. And indeed, it seemed to me you could have gone a lot harder on what your own practice today was doing by using Moore, in that Moore himself, of course, is not only imagining a future. He's taking past pr 
practices that he knew of yes. in the early church, for right. example, yes. um, in agrarianism, yep. and, yep. and mixing those with yep. futuristic parts. Yep. And you were pointing out, it seemed to me, the radical part of this might be a breaking out of the future orientation of 20th century utopianism. Um, and that your practice is in fact doing it and that that would be what we would do with media studies yeah. differently as well. These are, is these that are, wrong? No, no, I think it, it's not wrong. It's things I want to think about because I actually had not thought about exactly both the medium I'm using, but also if you read some of the articles in the newspaper, it's about drawing from the past. My other work on the WPA is all about the usable past. And I actually, I mean, this is what's so useful about doing this is I haven't thought about the role the past plays. It's not junk. It's actually re-sort of articulated through this sort of fantastical future. Um, so I'm going to work on that. Just to answer yours very, very quickly, um, my other project actually interviews all these people and takes them very seriously in asking them, how do you know if what you're doing is working? Okay? And so one of the things important here, this isn't everything I do. Okay, um, this is one thing that I do and one little section of what I do. And the other thing, I'm very interested in what those uh, artists are doing and have interviewed a number of environmental artists creating exactly what they call is these sort of micro moments of transformation. Um, and I think those micro moments of transformation can be and perhaps are more important than these sort of fundamental consciousness shifts which might happen in the presence of the impossible. Hi, I'm, I'm Tom Levinson. I'm in the writing program. Uh, and I, it, it sort of, it's n I'm not sure if I have a clear question, but I have two observations that came out of your talk that are, are kind of nagging at me. I wonder if you, ha if you can help reduce the itch, as it were. Um, first is, you know, as you were talking about um, the uses of impossible utopias in art, you know, it, it took a while, but it finally dawned on me that, that you were seeing artists replicating a very common, a, a sufficiently common political practice that it, that it has a, a term of art to describe it, which is moving the Overton window. You know, where, where the idea is you, uh, and, and this has been, you know, mastered by the right in this country, where you propose a completely unacceptable, yes. you know, clearly impossible... End of Social Security. Exactly. And then, you know, wait long enough and, and Bernanke goes before Congress. You know, a Democrat president, a Democratic president renominated uh, you know, head of the Fed saying, well, we have to, you know, reconsider entitlements and so forth and so on. So this is, you know, it, it, it's um, the, the, the idea that this is somehow a, uh, a practice distinctive to this tradition in art. It clearly is, is something that, you know, maybe this is where the use of the humanities yeah. is really seen as political operatives take, take the tools of Thomas More <laughs> and, and, and you move on. Um, but the other thing that, that, you know, sort of, uh, tied to that, uh, from the point you tried to, in, in your talk, where you distinguish between critique and this sort of uh, utopian um, uh, transformation through impossibility, as it were, mm -hmm. it struck me that, that the dichotomy you were drawing really wasn't, wasn't nearly so sharp as you made it seem. That well, it I seems to me implicit in the way you describe um, even how you, know, you interpret the original utopia uh, that the idea of critique is, is implicit throughout? Um, good questions. Okay, the first one is, uh, is this actually an old practice? Yeah, pol politicians have been doing this forever. I think the difference is, is that politicians, when, uh, well, two things. One is, 
the, the right in this country wandered in the desert from, and this, these are words that Karl Rove used, um, wandered in the desert from 1932 till about 1980. Uh, and there's a lot of hallucinating going on in the desert. And they hallucinated, um, they had visions, and their visions were things like doing away with, um, with, uh, with um, uh, Social Security, outlawing abortion, and so on and so forth. And my friend Tom Frank has talked about that, that at some level they know these are unrealizable, okay? And that if they are realized, they actually lose the sort of power that they have. The difference, again, goes to is it a conscious unrealizability or not. Karl Rove, Grover Norquist do not stand up and say, hey, by the way, guys, this is just a fantasy to get you walking someplace. They say, this is going to happen. Get out in the streets. Get in front of Planned Parenthood because you're going to stop it tomorrow. That's the ethical difference. I'm, I'm arguing, okay, is that these are transparent fantasies, fantasies which reveal themselves as fantasies. In this way, they're like professional wrestling or Brecht plays or Las Vegas, okay, all of which sell dreams as dreams themselves. Um, Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry, but I don't think it's—I don't, I don't get that at all. I, I, okay, that's, I, that's the problem. I here hope I'm right and you're wrong. No, that's, <laughs> but that's—that's uh, that's the problem here with what right. you're saying. It seems I can't tell where the politics leaves off and the then the media critic be, enters in. That's—I think some of the questions have been: Are you talking about your beliefs, or are you talking about a way of studying a group of artists? And now I feel like the line has been totally blurred. I'm, I don't mean to be critical, but I'm, I'm, I'm critical. worried about abortion rights being abolished. I'm I think very they're very worried real. about it, and I think one should c keep arguing against it. I think that the right wing, and I'm, this is not my opinion, okay, but this is actually many people have argued this, Tom Frank being one of them, is that these issues have always been floated as essentially points out in the future which mobilize the troops. But they are not, and this is the distinction, it's very clear here. They are not presented as such. What, when you have an impossible utopia, it is consciously presented to its spectators as a fantasy, which means it operates differently, fundamentally differently. But I want to answer your second question, which was, in a nutshell, the, the, sharp distinction. Okay, right. The critical and the, and the utopian and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, two things. One is I've got to work this through. Um, you know, is that I think that what I'm trying to get at is that there's another way to look at the critical practice as opposed to truth-telling and revealing. Um, is it critical? I mean, if you think about what critical means, it literally means sort of a judicious, often censorious way of looking at the present. So am I talking about critical when I talk about the sort of utopian moments? Partly yes, because if you imagine this space, you're also asking what if, which immediately draws you back to the present and says, why is it this way here? In other words, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. And so, that, so then the question becomes, is this just another roundabout way to do that sort of work? I actually think, yes, it is. The problem is, is it does that sort of work, but it also is doing something, and uh, not the problem. The promise is it does that sort of work. There's no way you can think about even an impossible future without reflecting on your present, right? And therefore, you engage in sort of critique, but it doesn't take that as sufficient. It may be necessary, but not sufficient condition. For sufficient, one also has to be able to create a space in which to imagine something different. The problem with critique, just as a sort of rational, 
um, revealing of the truth or exposing the lie is that it remains mired in that relationship, essentially, with the present or with the past. And this offers a moment to move forward. So at least that's an argument. I get the argument, and I mean, it's a long evening. I don't want to prolong it, but, but I guess one of my problems with it is that utopias I see not so much as imaginations of the future as specifically imaginas, imaginations of alternative presence. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would, I would agree with that, yeah. And, and, and that makes the critical function sort of working in the same, uh, you know. I, I think you're yeah. right there is a distinction, but I don't think the distinction is, I, I think the two, I guess the, yeah. the real thing is when you say it's because there's a surplus of truth and because there is a, a, a shortage of, right. of, of true believers, in essence, yeah. as the two points you, right. you, you made as the reason that critical critique in its conventional sense is no longer as powerful right. as it used to be. Those I'm not sure are the, the, the planks upon which to build your argument. Okay. We should talk later. Great. Well, Stephen, I want to yep. thank you very much for uh, speaking tonight. Sure. Sharing these thank insights. you. Thank you.